This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation, a conversation with Patagonia founder and owner Yvonne Chouinard. This unlikely and reluctant businessman explains how doing the right thing has propelled his business to the top. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby, and I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. It's, it's a huge honor for me to be able to introduce Yvonne Chouinard and his wife, Melinda, who's hiding in the background here, who's also joined us this evening, and um, real personal heroes of mine going back to the early 70s when one of our mutual friends taught me to rock climb, and I've been hearing stories about these two ever since, and I'm not sure I'll tell all those stories in public, but maybe over a few bottles of wine tonight we'll tell a few. Um, but I did want to just introduce um, Yvonne, and as you know, we're going to have a fireside chat. Erica Plombeck is at the business school, teaches in environmental entrepreneurship and operations management, and will be holding the fireside chat. She's also a senior fellow at the Woods Institute, so thank you, Erica, for doing this. Um, but Yvonne, I wanted to just say a few details, both about his outdoor adventure life as well as his business episode and adventures that he's been having because both are so intertwined and I guess just as a start when we think about you know unlike most world leaders and successful businesses this one did not start with an MBA at Stanford University it's amazing you know he he, uh, he did it his own way and uh, he did it really through the love of all these activities and um, most of you have probably read his book let my people go surfing which is a truly wonderful book about uh, business and and adventure more generally but I think this is how uh, we might sum up Yvonne's beginning to his venture adventures and in the 50s as way back into the 50s he was doing some of the hard routes in Yosemite then and in the early 60s and there's a great little section in the book that starts out at this time, and think about the time period in those late 50s, early 60s. He said, in Yosemite, we called ourselves the Valley Kong. We hid out from the rangers and nooks and crannies behind Camp 4 when we overstayed our two-week camping limit. We took special pride in the fact that climbing rocks and ice falls had no economic value in society. We were rebels from the consumer culture. Politicians and businessmen were quote-unquote greaseballs, and corporations were the source of all evil. The natural world was our home. Our heroes were Muir, Thoreau, Emerson, and European climbers Ricardo Cassin and Herman Buell. We were like the wild species living on the edge of an ecosystem, adaptable, resilient, and tough. And, you know, those of you who wear any of the Patagonia equipment know this is exactly the product that he's made. But this is where you still find Yvonne. You don't see him in the corporate boardroom or, you know, he's out there getting ideas and living the life that we all like to live and I think was why we're all here. But in 57, or late 50s, he taught himself blacksmithing and started building carabiners and pitons, you know, the tools for rock climbing that he and his friends really depended on, and drew many of his friends into both making the equipment and selling the equipment. As he said, hired his dirt bag friends, you know, to help him uh, just keep the 15 cents in his pocket and, and keep going. But, you know, these were tools that these people's lives depended on, and so they were going to make a good product. They weren't going to make sort of a shabby product just for the extra buck here. And, you know, during this time, they just 
were having these amazing adventures. You know, and you read the book, um, he's talking about after he got back from a short stint in the army of going back to do a first ascent on El Cap with his friends Chuck Pratt, Tom Frost, and Royal Robbins. And, you know, he's talking about being sort of scared and he's up at, you know, in, in the dark, still setting the route. And you're thinking, God, this is amazing doing this in 1964 with that rudimentary equipment. You know, you're, those of you who have been on El Cap are probably thinking of the nose and, you know, he's up there. But he's climbing the first ascent of the North American Wall. And I say this for just the people that would appreciate what that means. This is a phenomenal feat. Yvonne, I just can't even believe you did that in 1964. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. But, you know, it says it all about what Yvonne's, I think, you know, fundamentally about. You know, he does things for the love of the adventure. And it's really based on the love of it all, the, the talent he brings to it the instincts I think he brings to it. Definitely a sense of humor because I'm sure there were moments when you guys had to laugh <laughs> because it was pretty bad up there. And, uh, and just the knowledge, really deep root knowledge that, that this is gonna work out. And you know, his ride with the corporation Patagonia has been just one of these adventures you know, that has um, had its ups and downs and really relied with Melinda on core instincts and good philosophies and um, and really a focus on the product, non-obsolescence, durable products, things that um, people can use for a lifetime. In fact, uh, you know, I've definitely had my experiences. Fortunately, I can't get rid of any of this stuff because, um, and get new fashion because it all keeps holding out year after year after year. But I think I'm going to let Yvonne tell his story about, obviously, his, his company. And... Um, you know, it's just grown like gangbusters, especially after the mail order catalog grew 30% compound, 50% compound growth in the 80s. I mean, such a rapid rate of growth that, you know, at some point they just stopped and said, where are we going? I mean, we could be a billion dollar company. Is that where we want to go? You know, and can we really preserve the quality and get there? And um, can we, what are we doing to the natural resource space? You know, what are we all about? And I, I don't know very many companies that have been so successful that have stopped midstream and just said, let's reevaluate the whole thing and redefine ourselves. And I think the way he's redefined himself certainly has touched a number of, you know, different industries that are very unrelated but have the same core strategies. So without saying more, I just want to really thank you for being here and sharing your thoughts. And it's just a real pleasure to have you here at Stanford. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's, it's, uh, it should be pretty easy going. I just have to answer a bunch of questions, that's all. <laughs> so. Tell us a story. At least give us some, um, some idea about how you came to found Patagonia and, and to grow it. Well, that's a big story. <laughs> most, the most important parts. Well, I mean, we weren't. At one time, uh, you know, I had a blacksmith shop and making all the tools of climbing. And, and uh, I, I never wanted to be a businessman. I was a craftsman. I was pretty good at working with my hands and uh, but every time I came back from the mountains I had ideas on how to improve the equipment. I'm, I'm not an inventor, I'm a kind of innovator. I can look at products and I can say, you know, I can make that better. I look at that water bottle and you know that it's got antimony in that polyester which is toxic. You know, I'd say let's, let's make a water bottle and get rid of the antimony, we're in business, you know. I can't help myself. So. <laughs> A kind of backdoor business, but you know, making climbing equipment in those days was not very profitable. Let me tell you. And uh, in fact, I was I was one summer I was eating cat, uh, cat food. <laughs> there's a there's a store in San Francisco that sells dented cans. <laughs> not the ones that are expanded, the ones that are dented. <laughs> so I, I'd buy cases of cat food, and that's what I'd live on in the summer. So I wasn't very profitable, but that's how I got into That's how I got into the rag business. I figured that, uh, I, went, I was on a climbing trip to Scotland one winter, and 
And this, this is in the days when uh, there was no such thing as, as active sportswear. I mean, active sportswear was uh, gray sweatshirts and sweatpants. That was it. That's what men wore. That was it. They didn't wear colorful clothes or anything. And I came back from Scotland. I ha had bought a rugby shirt. You know, I had some colorful stripes. And I thought it made a really good climbing shirt because I had a... It was sewn really tough so that, you know, you couldn't tear it. Had a collar so that the gear sling wouldn't cut into your neck. So I thought it made a really good climbing shirt. Just something that would last forever. And I started wearing it and everybody would come up to me and say, Wow, where'd you get that? That's pretty cool. So, you know, I'm kind of a natural entrepreneur and the lights came on. And I started importing a few. And they sold. And... Uh, and then I thought, well, I need a pair of shorts, too. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I got some material, and it was number 10 canvas duck, which is what you, you know, for outside lawn chairs, real heavy canvas. I got some of that, and I made the pattern myself, and I had the, this Korean woman sew them up. They had double seat, and... And uh, she had to sew them on a, on a um, sewing machine used for sewing heavy leather because that's the only thing you could sew it with. And when she was finished, she stood them up on the table. And, uh, <laughs> and she started laughing, and that's, that, that was the birth of the stand-up short. So, you know, uh, <laughs> they were clothes made by a blacksmith. Uh, <laughs> But people appreciated the quality, and we kind of used the same philosophy of industrial design to make clothes. I think we were the first ones to do that. You know, normally you design clothes, you take a mannequin and you get the fabric and you wrap it around a mannequin, you pin here and there and stuff. And I'd love to be able to do that on live mannequins myself, but that's not the way it's done. We, uh, we approach it with all the principles of industrial design, we, we ask ourselves, what is this thing supposed to do? And it doesn't matter whether it's a pair of socks or, or a, you know, a suit for climbing Everest or something. We ask what, what's the end purpose of it, and uh, then we build according to that. And often the fabric is the last thing that's designed. So uh, it was a different way to approach business, and it's worked for us. So what's the guiding principle in your philosophy of design? Well, our mission statement is make the best product. Not among the best, but make the best product. And then secondly, cause no unnecessary harm. And if we can accomplish that, then the third part just kind of happens. And that's to use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. So, you know, we don't focus on that last part. You know, it's kind of like Zen archery. You don't focus on the goal. You focus on the first two parts, and the last part will happen. If You know, we'll influence other companies if we can show that it's good business. Mm -hmm. So a couple of examples from your book about how Patagonia has reduced environmental impacts were uh, the fleece from recycled plastic bottles, turning that into fleece, and going to 100% organic cotton. And at least in the short run, those new green materials cost more. So how do you manage that in your business? Can you get customers to pay more for the green product? And if not, how do you work this out and stay profitable? Well, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> Um, actually, you know, I believe that business has a responsibility not only in the product that they make, but how the product is made. Like, for instance, if you're, if you're a company making landmines, uh, you're responsible for what those landmines do. You may have a business, you know, employing people and giving them benefits and one of the best employers around, but you're making landmines. Well, uh, or, you know, I, I think, uh, 
you know, the cola companies, Pepsi and cola and Coca-Cola, you know, they all know that one of the major causes of diabetes in America is corn syrup. And they continue putting corn syrup in their cola. Well, and they're going to continue until we tell them to stop. But I believe that once you know you're doing some harm, you should stop, period. And, uh, you know, Ford is going to stop making SUVs when the customer tells them that they don't want any more. Until then, they're going to continue making them. And they're going to go bankrupt <laughs> because they're unwilling to change. I, I, that's, that's really the reason I'm in business is to make, is to lead and examine life, is to question every single process that we're doing, look at every single fiber and ask, you know, should we be making t-shirts out of corn or bamboo? You know, there's a lot of companies that are doing that now. Well, we look into it and we find out, you know, corn is a terrible crop to grow. We wouldn't be growing corn in America if it wasn't highly subsidized. It takes a bushel of topsoil that is completely destroyed for every bushel of corn that we grow. It uses fossil water from the Ogallala Aquifer, which used to be 30 feet under the ground and now it's 300. And uh, it's fossil water. It'll never be replenished again. We shouldn't be making t-shirts out of corn, not when the good part of the world is starving to death. So we, we ask ourselves all these questions, and then once we educate ourselves on what we're doing, then we, we exist to make the right decision and, and, uh, and try to influence other companies that it's good business to make those decisions before you're forced to make them by the government or by your customer. How do you make it profitable? Because you have. Well, you know what? It's it's uh, it's karma. It's serendipity. I don't know what it is, but every time we've made a decision uh, because it was the right thing to do, it ends up making us more profit. It's there's an absolute direct connection to that. Could you give us a couple more specific examples of how it worked out? Well, uh, that happened with organic cotton. I mean, we we found out that uh, of all the fibers used to make clothing. Industrially grown cotton is probably the worst because it uses 25% of the world's pesticides, only occupies 3% of the world's farmland. And, uh, and so when I found that out, I went to the Central Valley and looked at some cotton farms. And I can tell you, when you go to an industrially grown cotton farm, it's a dead zone. It's a death zone. There's nothing alive. There's no birds, there's no insect, there's no weeds. The cancer rate is 10 times normal. Uh, it's really brutal. And all that stuff goes into the ground. They use paraquat to defoliate the plant so the leaves fall off so you can use mechanical pickers. And all that stuff, because there's no outlet to the Central Valley there, it comes up in big sumps, these big lakes. And then the state hires guys to sit on lawn chairs with guns and cannons to scare away the birds because if they land on there, they'll, they'll have chicks with three beaks, you know, four legs. And, you know, after you see that, I just said, I don't want to be in business if I have to make clothing out of industrially grown cotton. And thankfully, there was a... And I gave the company uh, two years to stop. It isn't that we were going to start a little cotton line and see if that goes, and if that is successful, then we'll do more. I just said, we're out of the cotton business unless we can switch over completely. And that's what we did. But it wasn't easy. But now we're in a unique situation in that, um, yeah, it costs more. And the first year, we lost money on, on it. Because we had to teach the whole industry how to, how to make clothing without all these chemicals. And, and then, you know, some of you that are wearing stay-pressed pants or non-shrink cotton. Your average cotton product is only 73% cotton, even though it says 100%. All the rest are chemicals like formaldehyde, which is used to prevent shrinkage and stuff. Well, I wasn't about to make organic 
organically grown cotton clothing and then turn around and put all the chemicals back in. <laughs> so we had to learn how to make clothing by construction to keep the quality up. In the beginning, the quality wasn't very good. But we were willing to sacrifice that for the sake of doing the right thing. And now, uh, our, our cotton sportswear is very profitable. It's unique. There's a lot of people that are aware, uh, you know, the same ones that shop at Whole Foods. They want to buy organically grown cotton clothing, and we're there. So, you know, it's put us beyond the competition. And yet you've been good about helping other companies and sharing what you've learned or partnering on this? Yeah, yeah. That's why we're in business is try to help other companies. You know, we like Prana and Mountain Equipment Co-op in Canada. Um, we've helped uh, The Gap, Nike. We all share information um, on, uh, on, you know, there's no books that tell you how to make how to be a responsible clothing company. It's very hard to get all this information. You know, you can grow your cotton organically, then what do you dye it with? Some cotton dyes are very toxic, some aren't. Some colors are toxic, some colors aren't. And then where is it dyed? You know, is there an outfall going into a lake? Um, there's all kinds of questions. Leading an examined life like that, where you have to question everything you do, is a real pain in the ass, let me tell you. <laughs> when you're so open about your supply with Nike and the others, do you worry that they'll buy it up? And how do you, how do you balance that trade-up? Or do the, the suppliers appreciate that you're helping them find other business and so they keep you as the, the top customer? That's what happens, yeah. Our suppliers, uh, we are their top customer. They come to us first because they want to do the right thing. And uh, so, you know, we're pretty much assured of, of uh, supplies. But, you know, if, if, uh, if Walmart completely changed over to organically grown cotton, there wouldn't be enough cotton in the world to do that. Um, there's no way that could happen. Can you tell us more about how your environmental philosophy is integrated with other aspects of your business strategy beyond design, other elements? Well, um, we, we recognize that we're polluters. You know, you can't manufacture anything without a tremendous amount of waste and using up non-renewable resources. So we recognize that. And even though we try to minimize the damage that we do, we're still polluters, and so we we try to uh, we, we kind of we, we tax ourselves. I believe in taxation, actually. I've seen you know countries where taxes really do a lot of good. Uh, you go to Norway, and it's a very high quality of life, and they have very low income taxes. Actually, everybody thinks they have high, but no, that's Sweden. Norway has very low income tax, they have huge consumer taxes. So if you choose not to be a consumer, you pay very little taxes. And the taxes go to do a lot of good, whereas, you know, I don't, I don't feel very good about giving the federal government my tax money these days. Um, but imagine if you, uh, imagine if the next time you made out your income tax, you could put on the back where you want your taxes to go, you know? Say I want 10% to go to health and services. I want 15% to go to this and that. That would be called taxation with representation, wouldn't it? <laughs> but that'll never happen. But uh, if I if I believe that the government should be taxing non-renewable resources, be putting huge taxes on every barrel of petroleum, then I'm just going to go ahead and tax myself. So that's what I do. We take 1% of our sales, which last year was $2.5 million, and we give that away to environmental causes, working on mitigating all the damage that we're doing as polluters. And uh, so that's one of the things that we do. You decided to start doing that in 1985. And I wonder if you can take your mind back to that time. How did you decide 
whether you really needed that money to grow the business or whether you should be giving and taxing yourself. When do you start well, giving and, yeah. and how much is the right amount to give? Well, in those days, we were given 10% of our profits before taxes, which is the maximum that you're allowed to give away as a corporation and write it off. So that, we cons that was kind of charity. You know, that's, okay, I made a bunch of money this year. I got extra, I give it away. That's, that's philanthropy, that's charity. Our 1% is not, we don't think of it as charity. It's our tax on ourselves, whether we make a profit or not. If I'm not profitable next year, I still have to take 1% of our sales and give it away. So it's a, it's, a, uh, it's, 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 it's a tax rather than philanthropy. Could you do that if you were public? Would you do it? Would it be right to do that? Well, it wouldn't be my money. Mm -hmm. And that's... I started an alliance of, uh, of other companies called 1% for the Planet. We have about 440 companies now that all take 1% of their sales. We have no public companies. They're all little small uh, companies. The biggest one is going to be Mountain Equipment Co-op in Canada, which is a $200 million company, so they'll be given away. 20 million next year or something? What is that? <laughs> One percent of two, 200 million? No. They'll be giving away two million, sorry. I'm not very good with numbers. Here. And how do your employees feel about this? They love it. I mean, that's a, one of the best ways to keep employees is to have a value system in your business that they really believe. And then... Uh, we have a hard time getting rid of employees. That's, a, that's our problem. I think he has a hard time turning away. You told us, what, 900 applicants for every? For every job opening, yeah, we have 900 applicants. <laughs> we have very few job openings, too. <laughs> but you've considered selling Patagonia in the past. You mentioned this in the book, because that way you would actually have more money to give to saving wild places. And so why did you decide not to sell the company, even though there are many potential buyers? Yeah, I get, I get inquiries every week to sell the company. But uh, I just decided that I could do more good by hanging on to the company and using it as a, it, my company is an experiment just to see if this works. And it took me 15 years to write this book because I didn't want to come out you know, five years ago and then go bankrupt or something. I, <laughs> I wanted to make sure what I was doing. So uh, it's really an experiment to, to see and to prove to other companies that green business is really, can be really profitable. In fact, it's the only way to go. And we are influencing a lot of other companies. Not that I go around and talk to a bunch of CEOs, which I don't, but I've heard from, since my book came out, I've heard from so many businessmen writing to me and stuff that, you know, they're changing their business around and the book is being used and I know of at least 25 or 30 uh, universities that are using it in business classes. It's having a, a big effect. And had I sold it, you know, I mean, here's a typical scenario. Whoever would buy it would, would uh, ramp the sales up like crazy and, uh, it, you know, we only have 700 dealers that we sell to wholesale. Columbia has probably 20,000. North Face has maybe 5,000. I don't know. So, you, you know, you could grow this business like crazy. And then, you know, in four or five years, then you go public. And, you know, and then, then you get on that treadmill. And then you lower the quality because you got to. And we would, it would commit suicide. It would be against everything I believe in. So... No, we're not going to sell the business. <laughs> I think I can accomplish a lot more by hanging on to it. So what advice do you have for students that are here tonight and would like to do good for the environment well, working in business? Uh, since, since this book came out uh, a year ago, it came out a year ago, and the soft cover just came out this month, a lot has happened. In fact, I, read a, I wrote a preface to the softcover edition. One of the things that's happened a lot 
is, uh, there's been a dozen books about peak oil, the end of oil. And so, you know, rather than sit back and become a martyr when we run out of oil here very soon, or not necessarily run out, but the price is going to be so high that pretty soon uh, transportation is going to be the highest cost in our making of clothing. You know, growing cotton in Turkey, sending it to Thailand to be woven into fabric, sending the fabric to Mexico to be cut, sending it, no, sending it to Texas to be cut, sending it to Mexico to be sewn, sending it to Reno to our warehouse, sending it from our warehouse either to your house or to one of our stores. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. That's going to be the highest cost of making clothing here soon. Well, I could end up like General Motors or Ford by, you know, having my head stuck in the sand. So we made a commitment by 2010, which is four years from now, that every single one of our clothing items is going to be made out of recycled and recyclable fibers. So we're in partnership with a company in Japan to recycle all polyester. So, and then another company is building a $100 million mill to do nylon six. And then we're already coming out, I think, either this fall or next spring with recycled cotton clothing. We've got some t-shirts, really cool color, uh, kind of heather color t-shirts where we don't dye it or anything. It just comes, you get what you get. But they're, they're really great looking, and sweatshirts. So we made that commitment. And, and I would say that uh, the future is, I mean, would you rather own stock in Safeway or Whole Foods? I mean, there you go. That answers the question. If you really want to have a, a secure job, go work for a green business or a business that really wants to um, do the right thing, because that's, that's going to be the future. These other ones are going to go down, let me tell you. So I think we can open up now to questions from all of you. Uh, a big trend in the clothing business has been the shifting of manufacturing to third world countries. Patagonia and other companies do this because labor costs a lot less there than it does here in the US. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the uh, implications of this, both here and in third world countries. Well, I mean, there's, there's two reasons why we manufacture, say, in China. One is, is for the cost, but the main reason is the quality. I can't get the quality sewing done in America that you can in China. Those people sewing those clothes uh, have spent a lifetime sewing. They can put a zipper in this long and one just like that. You know, where in, in America you'll see, I mean, the, the human quality is there and they're buying all the latest West German and Italian machines and you can't beat them. A lot of the products, the most difficult products we make, the shells, the, the glued shells and things like that, they're all made in China. So quality is number one. But also, like I said, we have to think about how we're going to deal with, with the end of oil, and we can't keep moving things around the world. This globalism, this multinational corporation, this thing has to go back to local economies, local businesses. It's going to, and before that happens, there's going to be a chaos and weeping and gnashing of teeth, let me tell you. But we're thinking about how to do it. I don't know how, but, but we're thinking about it. I don't know how we're going to pull it off. But that's what we have to get back to. If you think about what the country was like, or what the world was like before petroleum was discovered in 1850-something, it was a pretty simple world. And I mean, the good news is we're going to run out of petroleum. The bad news is we have a lot of coal. <laughs> and whether we can manage that or not is a real problem. You know, it's in America. I think, it's a, I think it's a real curse to have all of these resources because we just squander them and we don't know how to deal with them. It's like it's a curse to be too beautiful. I mean, how many really beautiful people you know are really squared away?
You know, take, take a country like Iceland. You know, Iceland has 280,000 people. They have no natural resources except hot and cold water and fish. They have free education, 100% literacy, free medical care. They're going to be oil-free by 2020. Oil-free. They got it all, and they have no natural resources. We have all the natural resources, and we're just have no idea what to do with it. We're just squandering it. You talk about your awareness of global warming and how it's shaped your decision making and then kind of broadening it to what other companies are doing and how you're sort of viewing this challenge that the world faces now. Well, yeah, global warming is just one of the problems that we have, you know. I'm, I'm a real pessimist that we're ever going to solve our problems. And how many of you believe the government's going to solve our problems? <laughs> How about, do you think corporations and technology is going to solve our problems? How about our religious leaders? Are they going to be the ones that aren't in jail, that is? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, it boils down to we're the problem. You know, if we're going to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, it's because we're demanding that we do that with our wasteful lifestyles. And so, I really believe in that we're the ones that have to change. You know, right now we have the government we deserve. He's a reflection of what we have become. He and all his cronies. So if we want to have a decent government someday, one that we really need, we're, we're the ones that have to change. So I really believe in that. And So, you know, if you go see Al Gore's movie on global warming, walk out of there and then do something. You know, he says, okay, you know, if everybody in America changes their light bulbs, we'll go change your light bulbs. <laughs> I mean, how many of you have seen that movie and then walked out and did nothing? A lot of people. And uh, we got to act. That's, that's the important part. Hi, you mentioned that um, you have a, a coalition of private companies that have signed on to your environmental tax. How do we get public companies to do the same thing? Well, I think public companies will come around someday when it's good marketing to do so. I mean, you know, when you buy, you don't buy gasoline according to its quality. And, and they're all pretty much the same price these days. So why do you choose to buy from one gas station and not another? There's no reason. But let's say Shell decided to give 1% to the environment of all their sales at the pump. So you get a little receipt and it says, thank you for buying $40 worth of gas. You know, 40 cents is going to go to saving or creating national parks or something. Shell could be creating huge national parks all over the world. And I would go out of my way to buy their gas. I'd go, you know, blocks out of the way to pull into a Shell station. Wouldn't you guys? I mean, it's good marketing, and uh, that'll happen when the, this 1% gets going a little bit uh, stronger, and they can justify it as marketing, not as philanthropy. Um, thanks for coming. I think you're a legend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all of this I'm still alive. I see a little bit of a contradiction, and this is a complicit critique because I'm totally taking a, a cheap shot at myself when I say this, but everybody that I know that shops at Patagonia um, and wears your clothes tends to be, well, not everyone, but with, with few exceptions, sort of very highly educated, wealthy people who live incredibly wasteful lifestyles, live in huge houses. I mean, I own like four Patagonia ski jackets. I don't need all four of those jackets, right? <laughs> like, you know, every time they're put in a box, bags are thrown away, all these things happen. How are you going to try to, I mean, people that you sell close to are usually really wealthy people that drive lots of cars, live in big homes, go on vacations, fly all over the world. I mean, you see Patagonia in airports all the time. Um, how are you going to try to get those people to live less wasteful lives? And how are you going to try to target the non, I mean, you, you, you know, Patagucci is like a, a, a joke. It's like, you know, you really have this high-end customer base. And most of those people are already aware of a lot of the environmental problems doing something about them, but there's great swaths, like the, the Walmart customer that is, you know, doesn't have access to Patagonia. Have you thought about targeting those people? And 
No, you know, I, I can't do that without lowering a quality. It just, I mean, I, there's not much I can do about that, I don't think. I mean, Walmart, because of us, has started a line of organically grown cotton clothing, and they say it's one of the most successful lines they've ever started. And that's because of us. So, you know, we're influencing Walmart, and then it's Walmart's responsibility to sell to those people. But, you know, we can't, we did a page in our catalog one time that just said, you know, instead of owning a pair of shorts to play volleyball, you know, it has a little volleyball logo on it, and a short, you know, a short to run in, and a short to play tennis in, and a short to, you know, surf in and do all these things, just buy one pair of baggies. Because, you know, Kelly Slater can surf just as well with a pair of cut-off jeans as with a $50 pair of surf trunks. We're so over the, you know, we're not called citizens anymore, we're called consumers. And if you look at Webster's, consumer is one who destroys, eats up, you know, I mean, it's a very negative connotation. That's what we've become. And the Europeans only consume 25% as much as we do. And, you know, they're not poorly dressed, but when they do buy something, they'll buy, they'll pay more, they'll buy very high quality, and they'll keep it. That's the kind of the message that we try to get to our customers. Consume less, but consume better. That's, I don't know what else to say about that. You spoke a lot about the pursuit of building or making great products. So have you ever come up in a situation where the pursuit of making the best possible product, either the materials or the manufacturing techniques, probably aren't akin to what you're trying to achieve in the environment. So how, how do you wrestle with some of those things, trying to get the best possible product at the same time as minimizing the amount of damage to the environment? Yeah, that's, that's a dilemma. I mean, it's, it's a constant battle. The biggest battle I have, actually, is with our own employees, is convincing them that you, you, you don't make more profit by cutting something out. You don't make more profit by saving 10 cents on, on a, a yard of fabric by using a lesser fabric finishing. That you make more profits. Profits are directly tied in with increased quality. It's, you have to constantly, it's a constant fight with our own employees because you know, the devil is always whispering in their ear. You know, you can, you can save money doing this. You, you know, I mean, I, I had a fight with our own, uh, all our accounts. When we started a child care center, we were one of the f first on-site corporate child care centers in America. And if you let the money crunchers run your business, they'll tell you, oh, you can't start a child care center. That's, it's going to hurt the bottom line. It's going to, you know, we'll have to subsidize it. Yeah, we've been subsidizing it for 25 years. And I can tell you, it makes more profit for the company than anything. Because I have 70-something percent women working for me. They're in high-level positions. And I don't lose them when they get pregnant. You know, we have a three-month uh, maternity and paternity leave. And uh, I can retain these great people. And since then, I've found out, you know, that they figure that it costs $50,000 to replace an employee in lost productivity, headhunter fees, training, whatever. I've, I've saved that $50,000 so many times over. What are you doing to make sure that um, the voice that you bring and the reason that you bring to the company will be there 50 years from now? Well, that's why I wrote the book. That's the number one reason for, for writing the book, is for our, my own employees. I'm really trying to run the business and make decisions as if it's going to be here 100 years from now. And uh, that means, you know, controlling the growth, saying no to a lot of opportunities, um, and uh, anyway, that's why I wrote the book. That's the best thing I can do. I, and try to live forever. <laughs> How do you decide where the funds from the Earth tax go? Or whoever decides? How yeah, that's a good decide. question. Well, we, I, have a, I have a committee of uh, volunteer employees that changes every three years. 
and they get all the grant requests. They get about 3,500 grant requests every year, and we give out about 350 grants. So the so that each person on that committee reads, I don't know how many grant requests, and they make a recommendation. And then uh, I have two people that run, uh, run making out the checks and making the final decision. Where did they go and read that? It, we, we fund activists, environmental activists, uh, the hardcore ones, the ones that no one else will fund. <laughs> you know, the... You know, the corporate uh, public companies will give to the symphony and stuff like that. We don't give to World Wildlife Fund. We don't give to um, Sierra Club or anything like that. We, we give to the real hardcore um, nonprofits that really get the work done. And we can, our overhead for doing that is very small. I know of one. Seven million, seven billion dollar foundation that gives to environmental causes, and their overhead is twenty-one million dollars, and they only give forty grants a year. That tells you they have no idea what's out there. They have no idea who they're giving their money to, so they have to have these huge amount of paperwork, and they have to keep checking on these people to see what they do with their grants. Blah blah blah. We don't do any of that. We know. Who's doing the good work? Who's out there? And we give them the money and we just let them go. Keep it very simple. And I, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't vote for George Bush. <laughs> and, and, you know, we have a system that's winner take all in this country. And it's unfortunate. You know, we should have a, a system where if you get 49% of the vote, you should have 49% of the say. Well, you don't. It's winner take all, and I'm not going to wait around for the Messiah to come in and, you know, change things around because it's not going to happen as far as I'm concerned. So I, I'm putting my money where I think the work needs to be done, and that's there's a, a million nonprofits in America, 30,000 of which deal with environmental issues, and these are the people that get things done. Just pick up the newspaper on any given day, and you'll see that all the work, all the accomplishments that we're doing as a society are being done by civil democracy. It's always been that way. You know, from the Boston Tea Party to freeing the slaves. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't Lincoln that freed the slaves. It was a bunch of northern philanthropists who started the Underground Railroad, and the slaves were fleeing the South at such a rate that, the, you know, everybody freaked out. Civil rights, you know, it was, a, it was a tired housewife on a bus who refused to get off the bus. It was, it was school children that refused to go to segregated schools. You know, Yosemite National Park, people say, oh, Teddy Roosevelt established Yosemite National Park. It wasn't Teddy Roosevelt, it was John Muir who invited Ted, Teddy Roosevelt to come and camping with him under the Redwoods and ditched the Secret Service and got them all excited. It's civil activists that are getting everything done. Women's suffrage. And why not govern this country with all these NGOs instead of a bloated bureaucracy that uh, is completely on the wrong track? So by funding civil democracy, I can stay engaged in government, whereas I'm completely disenfranchised if I don't. I have to sit around sitting on my hands and wait for the Messiah, and that's not going to happen. Um, you mentioned the weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just curious if you're a Christian or if your family was Christian. Well, I was I was uh, I was born a Catholic, but I'm a philosophical Buddhist. <laughs> it's I mean I I don't have any statues of Buddha around, but I I'm kind of a Zen Buddhist in that I believe there's a beginning and an end to everything. I don't believe we're the end result of evolution. I believe that just we're one species. You know, when I rock climb, I, I think that that rock is alive. There's atoms in there moving around. If, you know, if movement and is life, then those rocks are alive. So I respect the rock. You know, I'm not about to drill a hole in it anymore. I did that once, but I, I would never do it again. 
I mean, I'm kind of a, sort of a spiritual person, but certainly not religious. You're serving as an inspiration to many of us. Who were your life inspirations that you actually knew, people? Well, my, my inspirations were all uh, climbers and stuff, you know, uh, adventurers. I'm, I'm kind of a romantic. I always read, I don't read much nonfiction. I'm always reading these stories of survival and things like that, you know, like Shackleton and, you know, these old, these uh, European climbers and things like that. That's always been my inspiration. great. Um, we talk a lot about culture at the business school. I'm curious, I, I, I've never visited Patagonia. I can imagine that the culture of the company is, is fantastic. I'm curious, um, when you were beginning Patagonian and up until now, um, how you've kind of communicated culture to, re to the rest of them, your employees and how we might want to think about that if we want to have kind of this environmental focus. That's, that's, that's a good question. Actually, I, I got into really bad financial trouble in 1989. We were growing 50% a year. I was growing the business in all the textbook ways, you know, adding dealers, adding retail stores, our own retail stores, buying mailing lists, sending catalogs to people that didn't request it. I mean, it was just classic business 101. And uh, there came a recession, and instead of growing 50%, we grew 30%. But we had built inventory for 50% growth. I had hired almost 100 people for this growth. And so it was a disaster. And we had been growing so fast that we, our cash flow was just horrible. Our bank that we were doing business with was going belly up. I even <laughs> went to my accountant and had him make an introduction to the mafia to try to borrow some money. <laughs> so I was really desperate. <laughs> but... You know what I did? It was a wake-up call, and what I did is I took a dozen of my key employees, and we all went down to Argentina, to the real Patagonia, and we walked around and would sit down and say, okay, why are we in business? And um, so it was a group effort. So, you know, well, you know, we're in, we're in business because we, we can't help it. We want to make really great clothing and climbing gear. So number one, we started identifying what our values were. Number one was it was really important to be making the best possible stuff that we could so that we took pride in our work. And, and then number two is we had to have flex time. That's why, you know, the title of my book, Let My People Go Surfing. We have a policy at work when the surf comes up, you go surfing. You don't go next Tuesday at 2 o'clock because it could be flat. <laughs> So then you're a loser. So. so we had to have flex time and to go on you know, a six-month expedition or whatever. And then we had to work with, with friends. So we had to hire our own friends and stuff. And we had to be kind of a family. And so we wrote down what all our values were. And then I translated those values into a philosophy of business. And that's what this book is, but it's not just for me, it's from, um, it's a compendium of all the employees and, and why, I, I can tell you that I've got 1,200 employees, I probably have, I don't know, less than a handful of MBAs. That's because it's, everybody's got a degree in anthropology, archaeology, biology, it's just, no, none of us ever wanted to work in business. It just happened to be that way. And so we decided to create a business that was a reflection of who we were rather than adapt ourselves to the, you know, the Harvard model of business. And for me, breaking the rules is the fun part of business. I, <laughs> and, and making it work, that's really, uh, that's the only reason why I stay in it, I think. Kind of, you know what? My favorite quote about entrepreneurs is, if you want to understand this, entrepreneurs study the juvenile delinquent. Because <laughs> they're saying, you know, this sucks, I'm going to do it my own way. <laughs> um, so a lot of companies might look at the Patagonia strategies that you've undertaken.
taken and just say we can't do that, we're publicly traded or we're not at the same high price point that you might be at. What do, what do you think are the three big misconceptions that companies face or what are the three things that you would tell a company, look at these things first, you can probably do them profitably? Well, uh, uh, you know, I gave a talk at here about five years ago to a bunch of uh, graduate design students and when I said something about you need to include environmental considerations in your designs, they just kind of looked at me blank and said, no professor had ever said that to us. They always say, oh, you can't do that, it's too expensive. And that's, that's absolutely false. It's not expensive at all. It's, uh, I think every time I get stuck in business, my way out is to increase quality. Every time. That's the answer. Whatever the problem is. We had a, you know, we have a cafeteria that serves, uh, you know, mostly organic foods and stuff. And, it, and it's subsidized. And it was losing a lot of money. And the person that was running it insisted that the only way she could make any money was to do a lot of baked goods, a lot of cookies. And, and uh, so muffins and cookies. Spent all her time baking and very little time on the entrees. Well, she left. I replaced her with a guy who's got a training in, in uh, chef school. He spends all his time on the entrees, and now we, the subsidies are $100,000 less because the quality is so much higher. I mean, the food is phenomenal now. So more people are eating, and I mean, it's a classic example. That's, that's, a, that's the important lesson is that you increase the quality if you want to make more profits. And like I said, every time we make a decision because it's the right thing to do, it it's, turns out to be more profitable. I have lots of examples of that, but I could go on forever with that. Just a quick follow-up. Um, do you actually equate higher costs with quality, or do you see costs and quality not really directly related? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. You know, sometimes by... Spending 15 cents increasing quality, you can charge $2 more. I, I give you an example. We, we make a down coat for kind of matrons in New York. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a big, long down coat and a puffy, da puffy down coat. And, and they, se they sell like crazy in New York and Connecticut and places like that. Well... <laughs> We dumbed down the design because we wanted to keep the price down, and so it sells for $250. We didn't do everything we could to make the best down jacket in the world. And, and had we done that, had we just really lined up all the seams and made a really classic, beautiful down jacket that you'd have for the rest of your life, we could have charged $500. And maybe it would only cost $20 to make those changes. In any case, you know, the people buying those down jackets are not your dirtbag climbers and stuff. They're, these people are paying $200 for a pair of jeans. So uh, sometimes, well, anyway, I answered that. <laughs> I thought even from a strictly business point of view, that was a fantastic book on retail business and for... Um, sustainable growth and corporate culture. So I think, uh, you know, the business school should take note of that. The question I have is, how do you um, go about trying to make a mining company think about the environment apart from funding activism? I understand that's the way to do it. But how else could you get a mining company to do it? It's a large public company. Well, you know, I've, I've given up on government, but... Uh... But don't forget to vote, because I think with, with companies like that, it, you, you have to have strong regulations, because I don't think they're going to do it on their own. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to get the feeling that I'm not, that I've completely given up on government. I'm certainly going to vote on the next election. I hope you do, too, because we really, I don't know of any environmentally conscious mining companies. It's just the nature of the game. <laughs> And the only way they're going to watch what they're doing is to have strong regulations. I don't know what else to say. Thank you very, very much. And 
thank you all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.